Well, we're in our series on Mark. Um, this is week three, and uh, we're in the passage that Neil has just read, which uh, kind of gives us two important things. It tells us a bit about the proclamation of Jesus' message, what Jesus preached, um, and then it talks about the invitation to discipleship. It talks about Jesus calling uh, people to follow him. And uh, we're going to look at those kind of two aspects, the proclamation um, and an invitation in, into this, this message. Um, but we're in the book of Mark, and we've called it the Jesus movement in some sense, because what the book of Mark tells us about is Jesus uh, from start to to finish, it's about Jesus. Mark is trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And uh, he gives us a little snippet right up front, which we mentioned, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, as verse one says, he's like, gives us a snippet. This is, this is the good news. This is the gospel about Jesus, who is the Messiah and the, the Son of God. And then for the rest of the book, he unpacks that and he shows us who this Jesus is. And uh, uh, the story is about the significance of Jesus and how people began to follow him, the movement of Jesus. Um, and, you know, 2,000 years later, here we are on the east coast of the tip of Africa um, talking about Jesus. So we know how significant that movement has been that here we are, Sunday the 19th, I think it is, of March 2023, talking uh, about Jesus. So I want to look at this passage and see if we uh, can just take out a couple of things that I think will, will help us. So um, the first one is in the first two verses, we see the proclamation, the message of Jesus. Um, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is preaching. This is the message he's preaching. The time has come, Jesus says. Um, you know, the kingdom of God has come Near, or as the New American Standard says in the King James, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available, it's up close, it's near, it's in front of us. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is Jesus' message. This is what he proclaims. Uh, so I want to look at that a little bit and then we'll get on to Jesus' invitation and hopefully... Ooh, it's 5 to 11. Yeah, you're not having lunch today. We're going to be here till dinner. Bless you all. I have a very long one today. Um, so, and yeah, hopefully we won't be too long. But the first thing I want to look at is this idea of the kingdom. So this is Jesus' message, actually. It's a message of the kingdom. He, when he starts, if he says, the time has come, the time has come for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is available. Why is the message of the kingdom so big? I mean, Vukile highlighted it. Um, because what God is doing on the earth is he is making a kingdom of priests. He is organizing his kingdom. A few of us were talking about this passage on Friday morning. And uh, Vukile, again, bless you, Vukile. You, yo, this is your Sunday. 
But um, a few of us were talking about this passage and Vukile brought up this killer verse in Daniel where it says, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Daniel is prophesying in the midst of Nebuchadnezzar, in the midst of uh, the king of Babylon who has crushed the the nations, who has crushed uh, Israel, who has destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Daniel's gone off to to, uh, Babylon and he's there amongst the king. He works in in kind of the, the king's era and he's prophesying, he's trying to help Nebuchadnezzar understand a vision that he has. And when he helps him understand the vision that he has, he begins prophesying about this kingdom that God is going to set up. Because Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of his kingdom failing. And Daniel says, that's right, your kingdom's going to fail. But not just yours, Persia to come is going to fail. Uh, Greece to come is going to fail. Every kingdom, uh, Rome to come is going to fail. Every kingdom of this earth is going to fail. And one day they all going to submit to the kingdom that God is going to set up. And it's going to endure forever. So the people were hungry for the kingdom. They believed that there was this Messiah, this promised king that was going to come in the line of David. The prophecies that go through all of scripture were these prophecies. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. This person is coming and he is going to set up the kingdom of God. This was this kind of like talk, this anticipation, this longing within the people of Israel. They were longing for this kingdom that God was going to set up that was going to endure forever. Now imagine you're an Israelite. You're in Israel, you're living in Israel at the time, you've heard these things, you've been taught these things, you go to school, their school didn't consist of like math science and everything, it consists of the Torah, you go to school, you learn the Torah, then you learn the Talmud, the whole of the Old Testament, you learn and they begin talking about God's promises, God's promises, but you are occupied by Rome. You're occupied by Rome. You have to pay taxes to Rome. You're like, oh man, we're under oppression. This is talking about the day when God is gonna break the shackles of the empire. He's gonna break the shackles of Rome. You know, like you are imagining this. This is what you've been educated for. You are looking out. You are longing for the Messiah. But things have been quiet on the Israel front for 400 years things have been quiet, like no one prophesied. Uh, Since Malachi, which was like before Jesus, was like 380, almost 400 years, things were absolutely quiet. There's been no prophetic word. There's just been people teaching. People are like, when is God gonna come? When is he gonna come? When is he gonna bring these prophets? John the Baptist rocks up, which we talked about last week. John the Baptist rocks up on the scene. People are alive. They're like, whoa, the first prophet in 400 years. It says the whole of Jerusalem came out to John the Baptist. People from all the country, everyone's coming out. Why? Because they're in anticipation. God is speaking again. God is moving. Is this the moment when God is going to instill his kingdom and break the shackles of empire, of the Roman empire at that time? 
there's like a lot of movement, a lot of anticipation. Jesus gets up and Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has become available. The kingdom of God has come near. You must understand for a Jewish person in Israel at that time, this message is mind-blowing. It's massive. Their hopes, their longings, their desire was for the Messiah to come and the kingdom of God to be instituted. They were pumped. Jesus comes preaching that the kingdom of God has come. It's a big deal. This is good news for them. Obviously, they get some of this wrong. As we go through Mark, we realize they get some of this wrong because they anticipate the Messiah to be a warrior. He's gonna be a warrior and he's gonna overthrow Caesar, you know, like he's gonna be a warrior when he rides into Jerusalem. He's not gonna ride on a donkey as we all hear. He's gonna ride on like, you know, one of those massive big horses, you know, like you see in uh, Lord of the Rings or something, you know, like... Um, Gandalf's horse, you know, Shadowfax, I think it is. It's like riding on and it's fast and it's big and it's mean and it can take on. This is Jesus. He's going to be riding on. He's going to have like an army behind him and they're going to like take out the Romans and like, the kingdom is going to be established. That's what they anticipate. Um, But we know as the story goes on that Jesus doesn't ride on Shadowfax. He rides on a donkey and he doesn't ride to, to victory in their sense. He rides to his death. But Jesus has come to announce the kingdom has come because he has come. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus has rocked up. So to give us a little bit of context, um, what do we mean when we say kingdom? I'm gonna try and explain that um, so, so maybe we can understand what we mean when Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God. What does he mean? And um, I've just got four points. The first is authority. When Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God, he is proclaiming the rulership of God, the authority of God. A kingdom is wherever the rulership or the authority of the king is recognized and expressed. That's, that's like by definition what a kingdom is. A kingdom is wherever the authority of the king is recognized and expressed. So when Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, what he is saying is he's saying the king has arrived. We talked a little bit about that last week, about the inauguration of Jesus, the king, uh, in his baptism, the announcement, Jesus is king, the, the recognition from the father, Jesus the son and the Holy Spirit in his baptism. The king has arrived. It means the authority, a kingdom is where that authority is seen, where it is available. Um, And one of the things we're gonna learn like super soon through the book of Mark is one of the things that we begin seeing is Jesus is the one who has authority. I mean, one of the stories 
soon coming up is about Jesus having authority of the Sabbath, Jesus having authority over the law, Jesus having authority over, over sickness, Jesus having authority over the elements. What is Mark doing as he's telling us story after story after story? The king has arrived, the kingdom has come. Jesus is the king that everything will bow down to. He's beginning to tell that story. He's wanting our eyes to be opened up to the authority of Christ, that Jesus is in charge. The kingdom has come. The authority of God has come and it is being expressed through Jesus. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is available, and we'll look at the repent part later when we talk about the invitation. But when Jesus is preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, it's available. He is saying the king has come and his authority is here. We can choose to submit to it, to welcome it, to live under it. And that looks a certain way. I was reminded of Judges, in Judges 21 verse 25, it says this, as the book of Judges ends, this is the verse that the book of Judges ends with. Oh, by the way, Sam, are you excited about the PowerPoint slides? Sam came to me on Friday, was like, you didn't have PowerPoint slides last Friday, make sure they're up there. I was like, you must be in Glenda's life group, because it, it sounds like, that life group loves PowerPoint slides too much. Anyway, but uh, at the end of Judges, the whole book of Judges ends and it ends on this like really downer, you know, like so down. And we talked about this last year, like almost the anticlimactic nature of the Old Testament. But it ends on this downer and it says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit or everyone did what they deemed was right in their own eyes, one translation says. Um, and, and what happens is where there is no authority, where the king is not present, people just begin to do whatever they want. I, I think of South Africa and uh, people do whatever they want on the road, certainly. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but like red robots are like optional, um, you know, uh, speed limits are optional, one ways, you know, give it a chance, take, take, like, but when we, when people start doing whatever they want, whatever they think is right, like, oh, you know, I'm just going to do this because it's okay in this circumstance. When we start deciding that we're going to do whatever we want, what it shows is that the rulership has lost their authority. The kingdom is a place where God's authority is recognized and expressed. So when we talk about the kingdom, we talk about the place of God's authority. We talk about the authority of Jesus and where that authority is recognized and begins to be adhered to. When we say we live in the kingdom, what we are saying is that we submit not just to Jesus, but we submit to the ways of Jesus the authority of Jesus, that we no longer do what we see to be right, we do what he sees to be right. 
Jesus is inviting us out of our own way of doing things when he's inviting us to the kingdom into the way of God's way of doing things. The kingdom of God, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about allegiance, my second point. Uh, if it's about, about authority, Jesus' authority, the king's authority, the place where that is recognized and uh, you know, accepted and expressed, the kingdom is also about allegiance, about who is within the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom. It's about allegiance. When, we are, when Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom and inviting us to it, he's inviting us to be aligned with the kingdom. He's inviting us to be citizens of the kingdom. Um, there's uh, in, in Romans 10 verse 9 to 10 we, it's a common uh, verse that's used to know when you're saved but it says in Romans 10 verse 9 to 10 if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are Saved. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Do you know what that statement is? It's a statement of allegiance. Because in those days, in the days Paul is writing to, no one, no one would declare anyone else Lord but Caesar. That was the statement that they would make. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is in charge. Caesar is God. What is Paul calling for? He's calling for an allegiance to a new king. He's saying, if you want to be saved, if you want to be in the kingdom, if you want to come into the kingdom, you have to realign your heart. You have to realign your allegiance. You move your allegiance away from Caesar and you move your allegiance to the king. Um, there, there was a story during Trump's election when uh, a pretty, this is in the US, sorry for a US analogy, I'll try and bring it back home now, but um, during the Trump-Hillary uh, Clinton kind of saga um, about six, seven years ago, I think it was, um, there, there was a story of a very, very, very significant a Christian organization firing a staff member because they were Democrats and had made publicly known on their social media that they were Democrats. Um, and the part that I find so shocking about this um, and so wrong about this is that when did our definition of Christianity become about being aligned to a political party? But what has happened over however long, what's happened over however long is that we are now more concerned to who we are aligned to politically or ideologically or economically or philosophically. We're more concerned with what people believe about philosophy, economics, and politics than we are concerned about what people believe about Jesus. We're more concerned whether we submit to a specific ideology on things than we're concerned about whether people submit to Jesus. What Paul is calling people for here more than to submit to any kind of ideological idea is to submit to Christ. 
This is the allegiance that we are to have, that when, we, when Jesus is calling people to the kingdom of God, we are declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. We are aligning ourselves with him. The kingdom is about God's authority. And coming into the kingdom is about aligning ourselves with the king of the kingdom. My third point about the kingdom is the kingdom comes with a way, with a way. Um, you know, like there's a, you know, you, you go to certain countries and there's like certain ways of doing things that are, are different. But the kingdom has its own way. Jesus says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus is inviting us to a way, and that way is to give up ourselves in one sense, to lay down our own lives to follow Christ. It is the thing that Peter, as we will learn later, most struggles with. He most struggles with the idea that Jesus is gonna lay down his life. He just can't fathom that. It's like, it messes with this whole ideology of the kingdom is that Jesus, why are you going to die? And Jesus says, no, no, this is the way. The way is I'm gonna lay down my life for the world and I'm gonna call you to lay down your life for the world. That the way of Jesus is this way of sacrifice, of giving ourselves for the king and his kingdom. It's laying down our lives. There is a way in the kingdom, the kingdom way. God's people have always been best expressed in the world when God's people lay down their lives. The attraction of someone like Mother Teresa is in one sense, the attraction that she has laid down her life and that we admire her for it because we just can't seem to do it ourselves. But the call to follow Jesus is this call to give ourselves to Christ and to lay our lives down. That is one of the defining features of this kingdom. The kingdom of God has come. Well, what is it gonna look like? It's gonna look like the son, the king, being the one who lays his life down. The, The final point about what a kingdom is or what this kingdom is, is is about its benefits. There are benefits to being part of a kingdom. Um, Genghis Khan is famous um, for his kind of ruthlessness of the Mongols. You know, the Mongols rapidly expanded from Mongolia. I mean, he even lives in Mongolia, but Genghis Khan rapidly expanded the Mongolian kingdom almost all the way through Europe. Um, 
and he's famous for this thing, is that he would ride into town, uh, to, to a town, and he would say, are you for us or against us? This is like Genghis Khan's like diplomacy. Are you for us or against us? We're against you. Okay, boom. He would wipe the whole town down. He would destroy it. He would destroy everything in it. Every person, every life. He would absolutely smash a town. But if they said, no, we, we're for you, he'd be, okay, you're a Mongolian. The full benefits of the Mongolian kingdom are yours. Like he, he was known for this kind of thing, which was different from like the Romans and that who like treated every kind of place that they went to as, as different. He was different. He was like, if you're for us, you get all the benefits of the kingdom. If you're against us, unlucky, you're done. You know, like, so just don't resist, rather just join. Like that's his kind of like sales pitch. Um, but there, there are benefits to being a citizen. There's benefits to being a citizen in different countries. Uh, you know, you get the benefits of that. If you're a Norwegian citizen, for example, I think of this because Lisa's uh, grandparents were Norwegian. And, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a Norwegian citizen, like those oaks love their lives, you know, like all healthcare is free. All education's free, including tertiary education. You know, they pay like 50% tax, everyone. But you know, like everything's free, pretty much. They look after you till you're old. Like if you're a Norwegian and you live there, then, you know, you get all those benefits. There's benefits to being part of being a citizen of a country. There's benefits to being part of the kingdom. To be aligned, to join, to give our souls to the kingdom comes with the benefits of the kingdom. And one of the benefits, as Eugene sung about uh, this morning, is that the victory of the king becomes the victory of the citizens. The victory of the king becomes the victory of the citizens. To be a citizen of the kingdom means that the victories of Christ become the victories of Christ's people. The victories of Christ on the cross becomes the, the victories of us, that Christ has overcome sin and death, that Christ has made a way, that the victories of Christ become your and my victories. Jesus rocks up on the scene and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, the authority of God. The way of God, the victory of God is available to those who align themselves with him. This is good news. The people were anticipating this kingdom that would not end. This kingdom that's available to you and I. The kingdom of God, of his ways, of his victories, of his authority, of his people. And the message starts out with these words, the time has come. Don't you like that phrase, the time has come? I don't know if any of you did this, but on Friday night I was watching Julius's speech at the EFF rally. Um, and um, so I was watching his speech and um, 
I found it interesting because halfway through, as Julius is speaking, he says this. He says, the time has come. And I'm like, huh? I'm preparing on this. Like, my ears open. I'm like, what? Has he been reading Jesus? No, I, th- I think it's a, a common phrase. But Julius starts going, the time has come. The time has come. I was like, he's like preparing my preaching my sermon in, in some ways, Julius. But no, what he says is he's over and over again t- telling the crowd, the EFF, our moment has arrived. Something has changed. Like that's what he's saying. Something has changed in the political atmosphere. It is now time for EFF to arise. It's now time for us to take our place. It now is time for us to, to you know, go to the streets, the revolution has begun. Like this is what Julius is saying. And it's charged and it's political and people there are you know, excited and you can hear the roar of the crowd and people shouting and Julius is in the moment. He is like going for it. The time has arrived. And like when I was listening to that, I was thinking about every political figure through history that has probably said the same thing, that when their moment has come, when something in the political atmosphere has changed, when something has arisen and their time to, to, to come onto the scene has come, they probably said, the time has come. The time has come. And you must understand, like when Jesus is saying that, He is, in one sense, making a political statement, but he's doing one that's gonna last over 2,000 years because here we are still speaking about it. He's saying to the people, the time has come. Something has changed. It's a new moment. It's a new day. You've been living under one kingdom for so long, but there's a new kingdom that has come. They would have anticipated, as Julius preached in one sense, preached on stage with so much fervor, telling people, hey, there is a new day. You must understand Jesus is telling people not just then, but for all time, there is a new day. The kingdom that is going to endure for all time has arrived. The time has come. The time is now. I think we we often think like, when is, you know, when am I going to be serious about my faith? Ah, maybe later, maybe when I get older. But the time has come. The time has come. As Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. The kingdom of God is now available. The time has come. Things have changed. Jesus is the resurrected King for us. The kingdom of God is available with its benefits, with its ways, with the authority of God and with his people that have aligned themselves to him. I'll try and be quick now in closing. The second part of this passage is Jesus calling his disciples and he calls them to follow him and he will make them, uh, or 
in the NIV now it says, I will send you out to fish for people. I will make you fishers of men. Maybe you've heard. Uh, but it's Jesus calling people. Um, and this is significant. He's calling people to, to follow him. Um, we were chatting about this on Friday morning, but I don't know if you've thought about how radical this is. Here's Jesus, he's preaching. He's preaching a significant message in a time that's really charged. John the Baptist has been on the scene. Jesus now comes onto the scene. It's charged. People are anticipating something. They're excited. Jesus rocks up on the scene and you think he's gonna go to these like significant group of people and he rocks up to a bunch of fishermen. And you know, fishermen, it's kind of like an interesting job, you know, because fishermen, you handling fish. I don't know about you, but I don't find fish like the most fragrant kind of animals, you know, like, so they fishermen, they've been working with fish all day. They probably not like the greatest looking at that moment, greatest smelling, greatest, like whatever kind of people, but Jesus rocks up with them and he says, Hey, you two, Simon and Andrew, follow me. And what do they do? They just jump out their boats. Have you thought about that? Imagine Jesus walked into your job and was like, yo, you, come, follow me. Sorry, boss, I'm out. Immediate resignation, done. But then he goes to the family business. Jesus goes to the family business. Remember, he's preaching the kingdom. He's inviting them into the kingdom to be followers of him. He goes to the family business of John and James, you know, with their father Zebedee. They're part of the family business. They've got hired men around them. Uh, you know, they're operating there in the family business. He goes, hey, James and John, follow me. Boom, dad, we're out. Like, just left the family business. I don't know if you can even fathom how radical that is. Like, do you think their dad might've been offended? Hey, I've worked this hard for you guys. Like you're gonna inherit this. Now you're just out. This is a radical thing. And they jump out without even thinking. They follow him. They, it's immediately they, they follow Jesus. There's something radical about both Jesus's call, who's he calling, and the immediacy of the response of people, giving up their lives, giving up their livelihoods, giving up everything to follow Jesus. And this would have been significant because Jesus was a rabbi, which means the kind of people that he would have called would never have been fishermen. You know, to... to uh, go through like kind of being a, getting to a point of following a rabbi in the Jewish academic system. You would have like been educated till you were about ten and and or eleven, and then you would have gone and learned your father's trade. Um, so you would have been educated to 11. In that time, you would have been educated on the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. You would have learned it. Probably you would have memorized it. So by the age of 10, most of the young kind of 10-year-olds would have been able to, by heart, you know, say the first five books of the Bible. Doesn't that like challenge you? I mean, like I can say like one verse. They would say the first five books. And, and then they would go and learn the trade of their father's they probably wouldn't have gone on further. But if you were academically inclined, you showed yourself to, you know, to be quite apt at this and you seemed like you had kind of a religious presence, you would go to the second stage. And the second stage would be that you would learn the whole Old Testament, 
probably by heart. So from Genesis to Malachi, you would have learned it by heart. You would have learned it to you about 16, 17. You would have gone through much more intensive educating in the ways of Israel, in the ways of the Old Testament. Um, you would have like intensely studied. And that was for a few people. And then there was like their tertiary education. And their tertiary education was like really, really rare. And it was only for a very select group of people. And that was when, when you had finished studying the Old Testament, uh, maybe you weren't gonna go into the family business or learn the family trade. You would then approach a rabbi and you would go to the rabbi and you would say, hey, rabbi, can I be your follower? And then the rabbi would grill you and they would see your knowledge, they would see if you had potential, they would see if you had aptitude, they would see if you were the kind of person that could teach the rabbi's ways, that could teach the, the, the ways of the rabbi and become like the rabbi. So they would grill you and like 99% of people would never get into that level of education. The, the rabbi would just be like, no, you're out, go and learn your trade, you're out, go and learn your trade. And then they would find like, one or two very particular kind of, of individuals that the rabbi believed could embody their teaching. Jesus does this differently. Jesus is like now recruiting people for the third stage and he goes to fishermen. There is a chance that these fishermen haven't even gone through the second stage. They're not coming to Jesus to ask. Jesus goes to them. Like this would have been the most privileged kind of position. I, I imagine like for a soccer player, you remember like Messi winning the World Cup and how excited he was, the tears, the excitement, he had finally achieved like the apex of soccer, he had won the World Cup. Like that was such a big thing, like such a small group of people. Like to be at that level, people recognize, it's like wow, what a privilege. To be at the level where rabbi is recruiting you, like that is the apex of Jewish life. Jesus rocks up to a bunch of fishermen that you are 100% sure, if you're a Jewish person then, that they are never going to imitate your way of life. They're not gonna have the intellectual know-how. They're not gonna be the kind of people that are inclined to this level of intensity. And he goes to them and he says, follow me follow me, and they drop everything. They haven't asked for it. They've been recruited by Jesus, the one proclaiming the kingdom. The call to the kingdom is this invitation by Jesus to become followers of him. Four quick points and I'll close. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Four simple things. It means to change, means to learn, means to become, and it means to do it together. It means to change, it means to learn, it means to become, and it means to do it together. Change, the message of the kingdom is a message of change. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, as it says in Mark. The message of repentance is the message of change. What 
Jesus is calling to, he's calling them to change their allegiance, to change their way of life, to change who they give themselves to. He's calling them to repent. The word repent, Greek word metanoia, means to be going in one way, to realize that the way in which you're going is wrong and to change direction. It's like, I think I said um, last week, it's like your, your voice navigation system announcing to you, er, wrong way, wrong way, recalculating, recalculating, turn left, and you're going in a different direction. The word repent is to change direction, to change allegiance. To follow Jesus means to align yourself now with Christ. To change the way of living, to change from the place where the king in your life is yourself, to change the authority that you get your life from, myself, do, be yourself, be who you are, you know, I do me, etc., etc. Like where you are the king of your heart, to follow Jesus is the call to change allegiance. It is to learn. One of the things we'll see through Mark and you see through all the gospels is that disciples learn from Jesus. They want to learn his ways. They want to learn his teachings. They want to embody the ways of Jesus. They want to learn from him. To be a follower of Jesus means that we come in humility and submit ourselves to the ways of Jesus. We submit ourselves to learning from Jesus. To learn how to live in the kingdom. To learn the ways of God. To learn what God values important. We come and we submit ourselves to Jesus, the King, the Lord, the Son of God, the Messiah, and Jesus, the great teacher. And it means to become To be a full embodied student of a rabbi would mean that you have become like your rabbi. It means that you would begin to live like them. Paul says, he says, this, this is the great hope of Christianity, that we would become like Christ. That we would become like him. We don't just want to learn and then try and manipulate our knowledge into our own ways. We want to learn and then embody what it means to be like Christ, to live like him. And finally, it means to do this together. A kingdom is a community. It's not just a group of individuals. It is a community of people. During AD 150 to about AD 400, there were a number of big plagues that swept through the Roman Empire, uh, some of them very significant. Um, one of the, the famous Roman physicians, Galen, during one of the big uh, um, uh, plagues that swept through the Roman Empire, he left the city. 
He just hot-footed it out. He went with all the, the wealthy people that would leave the city to die during the pandemic. And he went, I mean, this is a physician. Like, what is the oak doing? Um, but, but it was seen during the Roman Empire to leave the weak, to let the sick die. They're not contributing anything to society and for society to survive, the strong must survive. So don't let the strong look after the sick. And what they began to notice was that in amongst Christian circles, the mortality rate was so much lower than the Roman mortality rate, significantly lower. And, uh, and one of the reasons why they noticed the mortality rate was low is because when all the strong would flee the cities, the Christians would stay. And when they, what, they wouldn't just stay, they would nurse, they would look after, they would care for, they would feed those who were sick. And just that effort, that love, that giving would make such a significant difference to which people would live and which people would die. The Christian community decided that they were not going to live according to the pragmatist or stoic philosophy of the day. They weren't going to live under the authority of Caesar and those who, who just wanted the strong to survive. The Christian community were going to embody and become and live in the way of the kingdom. And they began to lay down their lives for one another. This became so prevalent that the Christian communities rapidly rose to a point, I guess a bit like, South African history, but to a point where, as uh, Bukile mentioned earlier, to a point where Constantine converts and becomes a Christian as he notices how powerful the Christians have become in the Roman Empire, not by force, but because their way of life and their community was so strong. They embodied Jesus and that embodiments of Jesus began to change the world. Jesus proclaims the kingdom, the kingdom that has come, the kingdom that is now, the kingdom that is near, and he invites you and I to be part of that. That invitation is today to lay down our lives to give our allegiance over, to submit to the authority of Christ, to declare in 2023, amidst all the pressures, to declare otherwise that Jesus is Lord. To believe in Christ and his ways, to give our allegiance to him, to follow him in everything. Can I pray? Our eyes are closed, while our eyes are closed, I wanna ask if you need to respond, if you feel like you've been on the fence with Jesus, but you wanna give your allegiance over to Jesus, I wanna pray for you this morning. If you're here and you've been listening to the narrative of Jesus, but maybe you've just never submitted yourself to him, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for us to give our lives to Christ, to follow him, to come into the kingdom. If that's you, while every eye is closed, I wanna pray for you. Um, 
Don't want to humiliate you, so all eyes are closed. If that's you, just so that I can know who I'm praying with, um, can I ask you to raise your hand now and I'll pray with you. If you're here and you're saying, I want to submit to Jesus, I want to give myself to him, maybe I've been holding back, but today is the moment you're saying, I want to come into the kingdom of God through Christ. one person just with our eyes closed I'm going to pray for if that is you you can pray internally um, but maybe you can pray this with me Father or maybe all of us can pray this I know for some of us we're not praying this the first time but we can pray aloud together as a church. We say, Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the King of your eternal kingdom, Jesus who died for my sins and rose again for new life. Today, I declare Jesus as Lord, not just out there, but in my own heart. And so I, I repent of my sins, I turn away and I give myself to you in Jesus' name, amen. Just one last thing, I wanna pray one last thing for us. I've, you know, one of the things we felt is like for, for some people this morning, there'll be something specific that God is speaking to you about. Maybe it's an area in your life that as we've been speaking or maybe over the last while it's been highlighted, you've known that there's an area of your life you need to submit to Jesus. And today, maybe you're feeling that call and that pull. I wanna pray for you that, as, that God's spirit would come upon you and give you strength to make the change in your life that God is calling you to. So Father, I just pray for every single person who that word is for, that, who that's relevant for, every person who has felt the stirrings, the promptings over the last while to submit an area uh, of their lives to you. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you'd come upon them. You'd give them strength and conviction to make the change, even when it feels very uncomfortable. And so today as a church, we want to recognize you, Jesus, as Lord, and we want to submit ourselves to you in every way. Amen. Amen. Sorry it was a late service, guys. Bless you all. Have a really, really good Sunday. Super excited to see you guys next week. Um, have a good day.